This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. So, welcome. You found Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, at Lawyer Liz on Twitter. And while I am an attorney with the law firm of Hall Booth Smith, the usual caveat that this show is not intended as legal advice. Instead, it's a conversation on the latest news and reviews, so to speak, of technology, be it drones, driverless cars, the Internet of Things, and all the buzz in between. And so with that, let's kick off today's show, and I'm excited if all the stars align and everything goes right. We're going to have some great guests joining us today and really looking at what is going on in the world of autonomous vehicles once again, because if anyone has read, Uber has, within the last week, announced that they'll be rolling out or testing autonomous vehicles in their driver services in, I believe it's Pittsburgh. I keep wanting to call it Philly, but no, it's Pittsburgh. And you've heard some other stories. Again, you know, we've talked on prior shows about what Volvo, Ford, and some of the other companies have made announcements. But with all this news, it raises the question of, how do you test, how do you secure, how do you regulate these industries that are carrying precious cargo? So joining us today are going to be two experts. One is Katie Masaurus, who is known in the information security and technology world as essentially the driving force between a lot of the public policy and security research and vulnerability disclosures. So we're going to welcome Katie momentarily. And then after conversation with Katie, we're going to talk with Georgia State Representative Trey Kelly, who chaired Georgia's uh, study committee looking at autonomous vehicles and how to grow the industry. So again, exciting program, really looking forward to the conversations on today's show. And with that, uh, Katie, have you been able to join us? I sure have. Can you hear me? Oh, absolutely. And welcome. And big disclaimer for everyone listening in that Katie deserves the biggest gold star for making time to join us because she is currently keynoting a conference in Singapore. And uh, hopefully we did not take you away from too much karaoke uh, this evening, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You know, I, I abstained from karaoke this evening in order to join your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, for that, I and the listeners appreciate that. And Katie, I was in the lead up and introduction. You've recently started your own company and uh, where you're CEO and co-founder of Luta Security. And as I was explaining to the listeners, you really are the driving force or one of the key factors in how this technology, the information security industry, 
goes about conducting their testing. And Bug Bounties doesn't really give it credit. But, I mean, you hacked the Pentagon. <laughs> That's actually the, the subject of my keynote, um, which is uh, in a couple of days here in Singapore, is uh, sort of the, the, you know, the policy hacking and all of the other stuff that had to go into preparing to hack the Pentagon um, before the actual hackers were able to legally hack the Pentagon. <laughs> legally being the key, of course. But- right. Uh, and one of the things that there's a there's a shift and a difference in hacking or researching vulnerabilities and software that drives you know, documents or other business activities and in researching the software that is running the Internet of Things from our cars, medical devices. How have you seen that transition or that gear shift in the industry? Well, I mean, first of all, a lot of these IoT devices, whether they happen to be on wheels or carried in your pocket or your purse, these are all just computers in different forms. Um, Recently, you know, we've just been seeing a whole lot of non-traditional software makers realizing that they are now software makers. Um, So you see a lot of IoT folks waking up to the realization that software vulnerabilities can actually cause serious issues in their end product, um, even if they they didn't grow up as a software company. So we're seeing a shift there. Um, We're also seeing the vulnerability research itself, um, you know, as more and more of these devices permeate our culture and we rely on them and our increasing dependence on them, uh, you know, makes it impossible to avoid them. Um, that our society's dependence on them has has actually garnered a whole lot of hacker expertise and hacker eyes on on this new area of research, which is simply just computing, you know, vulnerability research. However, it's just in a different form factor now. Well, exactly. I don't think a lot of the coffee makers have realized that they're now in the computing and technology industry. <laughs> Right, and you actually see a lot of these manufacturers utilizing open source shared libraries um, to accelerate the speed of the development of their software components of their products. But with that dependence on shared open source libraries, you see a shared vulnerability landscape and actually quite a difficult vulnerability landscape to patch even in conventional computing, um, as we saw with the shared library issue with Heartbleed. And that was, you know, that certainly affected all manner of different computing devices. But even in the traditional server-client computing world that we've been living with, you know, with the Internet of the past, like, 25 years or so, uh, dealing with shared library vulnerabilities is a huge problem, and it's actually uh, an incredible problem in the IoT space because these folks are doing a lot of shortcutting and using open source libraries to cut down development time because they're not primarily software development houses. Well, it's it's the reminder, as any elementary school student could tell you, you have to be careful whose paper you copy from, that if you've copied from perhaps not the class math whiz, uh, you may not get the correct answers on your math test. I mean, how how does that work in the open source community? Or if you could share a little bit about what happens when I d- discover that or if someone reports to me that there's a bug in software that is there, who updates it? Well, I mean... A lot of the open source uh, libraries have just a very small handful of dedicated maintainers of that software. 
So, one, you're lucky if you run into a, a software vulnerability in, uh, in an actively maintained piece of open source software. So that's one hurdle to overcome is the fact that, you know, a lot of these things are maintained by very small and often volunteer groups. Um, and then you've got the fact that, sure, you may, have, you may have alerted the software maintainer of that library to go ahead and create a patch, but then it's a matter of getting everyone who's using that library to download that patch and, in, in a lot of cases, recompile their code uh, to use the new library. And that's, that's an additional deployment step of, you know, there's a fixed version, but they're not necessarily deploying it in all of the different um, areas where that old vulnerable library is still running. So there's just additional complexity when it comes to working with shared libraries of any kind. Well, and it sounds like that's taking, that's even taking out of it the human factor. I mean, uh, I'll admit I am not always the best if you know, once the device manufacturer has patched their software and they internally, they it's not an automatic process necessarily. I mean, there are some folks, and we can talk about that, but what happens then? So I fixed the problem on the seller side. How do you notify the users? Well, and that's, that's actually a great area that still needs a lot of kind of normalization because a lot of software vendors like Microsoft, you know, one of my former employers, they essentially got everyone used to the fact that, you know, all of their coders happen to be human and humans make mistakes and every patch Tuesday you're reminded of those security mistakes, but it's more of a normalized communication to the users and there's a, you know, kind of a fixed way to get your patches and you know where to go and you know what to, you know, what to read into the advisories because it's very consistent language. What we find in a lot of these newer IoT vendors is they haven't even thought about how they would notify their customer base and then how they would appropriately um, position the level of risk and urgency in order to strike that balance by letting people know what they're vulnerable to and why they need to take action and what to do about it versus causing a panic and causing a lack of confidence in your product such that people decide to go with a competitor, even if that competitor is actually doing far less when it comes to security. Um, that competitor may look more secure to the average consumer because that average consumer might not be used to receiving security alerts from, from, for example, its car manufacturer. So, and let's use the car industry as a good uh, starting point or example because it, they're not not everyone's created equal. Unfortunately, uh, you hear about recall notices on the physical side of the automobiles, but you don't always hear about the software. I mean, how has that? Or have they even been able to incorporate that into their... I mean, I don't always think of when I start my car, oh, there may be a critical software patch out there. Did I download it today? Right, exactly. And for most automobile manufacturers today, with the exception of Tesla, um, most automobile manufacturers rely on uh, the, the, the consumer or the dealers, you know, of the cars to basically service those software updates, um, and that's their distribution mechanism. Whereas you see auto manufacturers like Tesla, who are more technologically you know, inclined and advanced just by the nature of, of the kinds of vehicles they're building that are electronic in the first place, um, they're much more comfortable in that world, and so they've designed over-the-air updates. 
And there are pluses and minuses to those, you know, either a manual recall type approach uh, versus an over-the-air kind of update approach. Well, and it, as much as we have teased Tesla on prior shows for their crashes with the autopilot and, you know, the sensors not being able to distinguish in one case between the side of a truck and the horizon, it, they did receive a 100% part or download participation patching of a recent critical software fix by you know, everyone went next time you turned on your car it had already connected and the software fix had been downloaded and you it, does that require a connection to the i mean are the cars constantly connected to the internet or or wi-fi capable or is it something where you had to have plugged it in well, I mean, I believe the real the real wonder in that you know in that system is that when it's working well, you mentioned a hundred percent you know download success rate when the automated uh, downloads of critical patches happen. I think the really interesting thing about that is that's when it's working perfectly as intended. Um, however, there can be issues where you know. It, for example, if a patch doesn't work um, in certain configuration environments where you could end up doing damage with an over-the-air patch or you may essentially brick your vehicle um, with something like that. And that's that's a potential risk area for the over-the-air automated no-user inter- in, uh, user interaction required type of patching. Well, um, I was going to say... Actually, in the browser space as well, um, in the differences between how the browsers uh, deal with the patching. Well, absolutely, and we'll have to talk about the issues with bricking your car different from your phone after this commercial break, but you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Just a matter and of getting welcome. the plugs and the zeros and the ones <laughs> all say, in order. 
Well, and welcome back. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio, and we're chatting with Katie Masaurus on how do you test and research in the automated or autonomous car in the IoT, and if anyone knows how to create a research and vulnerability disclosure environment, it certainly is Katie. So, Katie, welcome. Uh, thank you again for joining us. And we were talking before the break about, well, what happens when the software patches don't work? Uh, and there's a big difference between bricking your cell phone, in, in other words, it, not just the blue screen of death, but the black screen of death where nothing's going. It, you can't take a call. You can't send a text. Eh, okay. But if you've bricked your car and it's not going for that's a big difference. Absolutely. And as we're seeing more and more of these uh, Internet-connected devices, not just vehicles, but obviously medical devices are a big research area now as well. And, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, <laughs> if you mess up a patch on a pacemaker, you, you don't just brick a human, you kill a human being. So there are, there are much higher stakes at hand of patch reliability, especially in, um, you know, no user interaction required type of automated patching scenarios. While it's great for promoting patch adoption, there is a very, very dangerous quality issue um, that you have to be able to manage on the back end. And that's just a layer of complexity that we have with more of these connected devices. I mean, I could imagine the tech department or, you know, companies, PR even, holding their breath as, okay, we're pushing out the patch. Let's hope the pacemaker keeps ticking. <laughs> you know, it, it, there's a little bit of liability that comes with that. And especially when we're not talking about companies or devices in just one location. I mean, you've got the same issues. It doesn't matter if the car is located in Georgia, Florida, or Singapore. If the issue exists and it's critical, it needs patching. Now, how how are companies navigating? Because even states have varying degrees of what they're going to require for certain software and technology issues. But when you start going across the borders of countries, it's a whole new ball game. And you've testified on some, you know, and I believe written several white papers. I can't keep up with all your white papers that I've read, but you've, this is an area you've been working hard in. Right. So you're, you're, I think you're referring to the Vassana arrangement, which is, um, a uh, voluntary agreement between 41 countries, and it was originally designed as a um, nuclear non-proliferation type of treaty. And uh, more recently, it's been uh, used for export controls of not just crypto uh, technology, um, but also very recently uh, the addition of intrusion technology and um, surveillance technology and that type of thing. But I mean, in terms of software updates, it's less of a it's less of an issue. It still is an issue in terms of export controls, um, in terms of potentially 
some of the means by which software updates might work, um, if they would fall into the category of what is defined as, as intrusion software, as in their, their, instead of just installing a regular patch, they're actually sort of hacking the system, you know, from, from the manufacturer itself or maybe from a third party, but they're designed to actually patch the system, they still might technically fall under the definition of what is currently export controlled under the Vossenar arrangement. So there's, you know, there are some gray areas that we're, you know, currently trying to work out and amend that core language of the Boston arrangement so that it doesn't interfere with the defense of the Internet. Well, and it, from a researcher standpoint, because you work both on with the company side but also with the researchers, how do you approach, I mean, some of the, some of the states, including Michigan, have looked at putting in place prohibitions against testing the software on perhaps the car you've purchased or in the case of some of the agriculture industry, a tractor. Tractor breaks down. I am under the existing terms of service and EULA agreement. I'm not allowed to mess with my software. Uh, And it may be something that is a patch that needs to come out or something. But how do you strike that balance with policymakers and the manufacturers? Well, and and the Michigan uh, law proposal that you talk about is very interesting because it's it's coming from a good place, like, you know, all of these regulations and and law proposals are generally coming from a good place. Um, But there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how the technology works and how security research works such that they're often worded in such a way that would make it illegal to find vulnerabilities in order to fix them. And so what's wonderful about actually the, um, the example you gave is the Michigan legislators have actually been open to the influence of some of the technology people who have turned their focus, like I have, on influencing policy. So that's, that's a positive. That's a net positive thing. Similarly, you know, with the struggles of raising awareness on the Bossinar arrangement, um, there's also been a very fundamental shift in the ability and the willingness for some of these policymakers and lawmakers to work directly with the not just the general technical community, but the specific skilled technical community around security vulnerabilities. That includes researchers, and that includes people who understand the technology such that they can advise them properly. Well, and how difficult are those conversations when you're trying to find that that base level of knowledge of, okay, this is the starting point from which we can begin the explanation? I mean, I imagine it's broad across the spectrum that you have some policymakers that they get it, others that you really have to break it down to a, a fundamental, basic, this happens when you do this level. Where have you found that balance to be? Or how difficult has it been? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, at first it was definitely a stranger in a strange land kind of learning process of learning, you know, learning some of the language of the policymakers and lawmakers that I was unfamiliar with. And not just coming in, you know, kind of all guns blazing, trying to educate them. It's it's a mutual education process um, because 
again, like I said, these folks are not doing this to stifle security research. That is not their goal. You know, they actually do want to make cars safer and the Internet safer and the modern Internet that we're growing into, which is, you know, we call it the Internet of Things, but it's essentially going to be just the Internet, the Internet of Everything, right? Exactly. Um, Right. So the initial conversations... I look at lawyers and coders in a lot of the same way. You you have to write something very precisely, and it will be executed, you know, according to what you have written, right? And so looking at uh, some of these laws and these regulations, it's a matter of, one, developing and building some empathy with these, these regulators and lawmakers and understanding wh- what their goals are, and then looking for ways to try and help them achieve their goals while, you know, still preserving the ability for the Internet to defend itself and the security researchers who are a vital part of that to be able to operate without fear. Well, and how, now that you've been able to work for, in this policy arena and really focusing on these issues for a couple of years, where do you see the industry going? I mean, as you noted, the regulators, we hope, are really focused on the safety aspects and, but also on the economic development. And so striking that balance, where do you see kind of a a shift or are we still waiting for a fundamental shift in how they're approaching the research in such critical infrastructure and devices? Well, I think there is a broad openness now worldwide um, to respect security research. However, it's that devil in the details bit. And so that's where we are right now is, you know, I think everyone is is basically in agreement that they don't want to stifle security research or the defense of the Internet or vulnerability coordination across the globe. Um, Nobody wants that. However, it's a matter of explaining exactly where the language, uh, you know, of what they're proposing um, overlaps with quote-unquote legitimate security research. And I put that in quotes deliberately because that in and of itself is incredibly difficult to define. And so that is, you know, your question of what is the future, where do I see this going? I, I think there's going to be a lot of folks who attempt, valiantly attempt to define what legitimate, quote-unquote legitimate security research is, But you're actually going to find that there's a whole lot that falls outside of what anyone might be able to write down and describe as that. Um, You know, and and you can find things by accident, for example. You know, I call those hacksidents. But, um, you know, those types of activities may fall outside of what what these well-meaning folks try to define as legitimate security research. So I think we're going to have... We're going to have a little bit of, uh, you know, issues to overcome still in trying to steer people away from uh, making a very narrow definition of what is legitimate and what isn't, and actually instead turning their focus on just really trying to fix these problems and not just trying to fix them in terms of finding the, vu- the vulnerabilities after the fact, but trying to fix them earlier in the software development life cycle. And that's a bigger cultural shift um, that, that we need to see happen, especially in the IoT space. Well, and it, as you noted, it's not like okay, if the researcher presenting their findings to me is wearing a black hoodie, therefore it obviously wasn't legitimate research, but if they're wearing a gray hoodie, then yes, we can trust their their insights. But tell us a little bit about, uh, before we let you go, tell us a little bit about your current project uh, with Luda and really where you're where you're 
continuing to grow the advocacy? Yeah, well, you know, I started this company, uh, Lita Security, and it's it's named after the small tropical island where my mother was born in the Northern Mariana Islands. Um, and uh, I focus on helping governments and large co- complex organizations work much more efficiently with hackers. Um, most of them actually need help in just setting up a straight vulnerability disclosure program. Uh, some of them need help setting up bug bounty programs, but what I found is the majority of organizations and governments they've actually never received a vulnerability report from the outside, or if they have, they did not have any processes set up to deal with it. So I actually help them in sort of a business management consulting realm in how to build the capabilities to comply with the ISO standards on vulnerability disclosure and vulnerability handling processes and do a gap analysis for them on their capabilities and help them build that muscle to well, deal with it when a friendly hacker comes and knocking. Well, and thank you so much. You certainly have your, for joining us, you have your hands full, break a leg at the conference, but we're going to jump to a commercial break. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, and thanks to Katie Masorius for joining, uh, joining us so far today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, coming to you each Wednesday at 2 on America's Web Radio. And... As we just heard from our guest, Katie, that there's a lot that is going on in the research and vulnerability and patching and disclosures with the Internet of Everything, driverless cars, and all the technology in between. And one of the issues is how do states play 
into this role? What can states do to drive the economic development, the regulatory place they fit? And what better way to delve into this than our next guest, which is State Representative Trey Kelly from here in Georgia. And Trey, welcome to the show. Glad you could join us and hopefully we're going to really get into some of the stuff you looked at uh, about a year and a half ago with your study committee. So welcome. Good afternoon, Liz. It's uh, great to be on the program this afternoon to talk about an issue that I'm certainly passionate about, but also that I think needs to remain at the forefront of our public policy discussions, uh, not only in the Georgia legislature, but across the country, the driverless technology uh, that is developing and uh, is going to certainly play a impact in the way our country's transportation network fits together over the next uh, upcoming year. So looking forward to having the discussion today. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And as anyone who commutes into an office uh, each day uh, can share my frustrations, traffic can be a bit of a bear. And not just because of the volume on the roads, but uh, not every driver that you encounter, well, uses the common uh, good sense that God or at least their mother should have given them. And there's more to it than with the cars. And with the driverless Revolution, so to speak, we're taking some of the human factor out of it. Well, you're exactly right, and and that is what has really driven my interest in driverless car technology is the increased safety that it would that it would bring to Georgia roads. Uh, you know, nearly all wrecks that occur on Georgia roadways, in some form or fashion, come uh, from human error whether it's going too fast, whether it's not paying attention, um, whether it's, uh, you know, you know, just, just having a bad day and, and, and maybe not getting your car stopped as quick as, as you should be able to. But largely We're listening to uh, Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on your podcast, right? Getting distracted. <laughs> Absolutely. I, uh, that, that could certainly be a, uh, be a cause. So, but the safety factor is certainly one that, that is paramount here. We believe that the driverless technology would certainly cut down on the number of wrecks and the number of deaths that occur on our roads. Uh, but also, there's so many other factors uh, that make it an attractive uh, proposal for, for Georgia. Uh, one, you know, I, I, I travel a lot uh, for work, and uh, as does my wife. And I, I think about, you know, for a long time, she had an hour commute each way. And I know for those in the metro uh, Atlanta area, that's, uh, that's very common uh, for for us out here in more rural Georgia. It's it's a little more um, uncommon, and so you know I really started just thinking about you know the hours of productivity that are lost uh, while we're sitting in traffic and and sitting in our cars. And I, I would joke around and say, if my wife could safely do her hair while she was going to work, <laughs> her life would be so much better. Uh, she could get that extra time to sleep in in the morning. You know, but, but honestly, if you have the opportunity to get your productivity back where you can work on answering emails or reading uh, articles or briefs that you have to look at every day, so much productivity could uh, come back to us in terms of our commute each day and make it more enjoyable, improve the quality of life for, 
for Georgia residents uh, to complement the safety factor. The well, other, I'll say, uh, absolutely. And the take care, we the drivers are just are distracted. Period. Uh, it seems you hear, you who was it? The NFL player who just received a. a traffic ticket for playing Pokemon Go in his car. Uh, texting at the... I always am amused when you see the selfies when the driver's obviously behind the wheel thinking, wow, you've just posted for the world to see that you are committing a, a traffic violation in most states. Uh, kudos, kudos. But it's, dealing with that, it, it's kind of... It, creating this net or basically protecting us from us, so to speak, if we're already doing it? Well, I think it's just the natural involvement of automobiles. I mean, I I think this could be uh, one of the largest uh, revolutions that take place in in automobile technology that that we've seen in a long time. I mean, we have seen uh, over the years develop our cars have got safer. We've added seat belts. We've added airbags. Uh, we've improved the materials that they're made of and worked on crash technology. Um, but we haven't really been able to cut out of the number of crashes. We've been able to. Um, in fact, we've seen the opposite. Crashes have, have increased because of technology, because of uh, because more commuters are on the road. And so while we've made our cars safer in terms of protecting us when we're in a crash, there hasn't been uh, the game changer that I see of, helping eliminate the crash and that's what we're seeing now and well and uh, and you chaired a study committee and while i think in the study committee reports the numbers were uh, are a little stale now because the your study committee met in 2014 the report came out at the beginning of uh, 2015 but y'all noted in there that it's really a dawning of a new the next phase of transportation but states need to on some level get out of the way and let the thinkers think and really so for anyone who's listening in i encourage uh, representative kelly chaired the georgia house autonomous vehicle technology study committee and their report is available online and really gives insights into what your committee looked at from researchers at Georgia Tech's uh, Research Institute to other universities in Georgia. And y'all kind of laid out a framework for Georgia to take a look at this. And if you could share a little bit about what thoughts went into the report a year ago and then let's look at two kind of all right now what we're a year and a half later but what were some of the things that y'all really evaluated with this technology and growing it within georgia with any new technology uh you know there can be skepticism there can be uh concern Uh, it can give um can cause you know one to, to pause, but if, if you're not in the in the subject area, and so from a public policy look, we feel we have a responsibility to make sure that as technology develops, uh, that the best interest of Georgia citizens and the, their safety is being protected. So the first thing we really wanted to to look at is are there new safety measures that we need to put in place in terms of driverless cars. 
we we ultimately answer that question as you know as of today no new laws needed to be on the books uh, and, and that no takes a lot for lawmakers to be able to say pause we're good right now we don't need to do more and, and I think that was one of the goals of the study committee is uh, over the last couple of years we have had legislation introduced uh, in the driverless car spectrum um, but when I talk to the uh, the developers, the real experts in the field, and in my viewpoint, um, they told me that their concern was any proactive piece of legislation would be, by the time the technology continues to evolve, would be outdated before we could even get the, the ink dry on the legislation and would ultimately come, become a hindrance to the technology and to the developing safety of the technology uh, than it would be a, a help. And so I, I'm glad that the House, um, we have had a couple pieces of legislation make it over uh, to the House side uh, from the Senate regarding this technology. Uh, but I'm, I'm proud of our House leadership and our speaker uh, to, to recognize and, and listen, uh, you know, take notice of, of the committee work that we've done to our study committee, but also listening to industry representatives uh, who have said that it's not needed at this time. And so we, we ultimately... Uh, have kept any new attempts to legislate driverless cars uh, off off Georgia's uh, out of Georgia's code uh, for now. Uh, and, and we oh, see, the wisdom that is- in that, I think, is when you look at over the last two years since our study committee, how much the technology is already being integrated and how much uh, it's already changing. Where two years ago it was very much of a a rarity you are now seeing many many cars come off the the assembly line with with at least uh, partially integrated driverless technology into it Uh, the the teslas uh, chevrolet and ford are both um, making huge strides Uh, gm with the the super cruise in their cadillac line uh, and also you're seeing your manufacturers lexus volvo hyundai uh, kia all these uh, makers are integrating more and more of the technology in their system, uh, and that's outside of all the work that's being done on, out in California on behalf of Google. Well, and you raise a good point. I mean, Georgia is home to a, a Kia plant, and a, there's just so much shifting, even in those two years now. Did you ever get or did any of the other committee members have an opportunity to test drive the features in the various cars? Not, you know, I think the most well-known car is the is the Google product that, that they have out in California. And I would love to say that, that I've had the opportunity to, to be in one of those. I haven't had a chance to ride in one. I've, I've had opportunity to, to travel to, to California and uh, visit the, the Google headquarters and, and talk to them about the technology, see one of the actual cars uh, there, but I haven't had the opportunity to, to ride in one myself. I say, well, I volunteer if the opportunity arises for y'all to conduct additional research uh, in this area, I would be happy to go along, especially in the Teslas. Uh, you know, it. I think it sounds like fun just to see what they're doing. So I would sacrifice my time and energy on behalf of the state of Georgia just to 
throw that out there. <laughs> well, that is that is very kind of you. That is, uh, we appreciate your willingness to help move our state forward on this issue, and uh, I'll be right along there there with you. And you, you talked on Tesla, and and I have had the opportunity to ride in some of the, the cars like the Tesla, like the the, the uh, GMs, and with some of the new technologies that they have today. Um, you know, I was speaking with someone just um, earlier today about about the technology and about the upcoming um, uh, program that I was going to be on this afternoon, your, your radio program. And he said, yeah, I, I have that in my Hyundai. It's, it's great. I can uh, set it when I'm on the interstate at, at a, whatever speed I want to go and how many car lengths I want to be. And essentially, it'll, it'll just go. It'll regulate um, the, the safe distance. And he said he did it for over four hours. Well, there uh, you go. The interstate the other day. And, and, and some, is. I was going to say, some might consider that four hours just a, a daily uh, on the way to work commute in the city of Atlanta. But uh, we're going to jump to a commercial break. We're chatting with uh, Georgia State Representative Trey Kelly on Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. And find us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 live online and podcasts available. And today we are chatting with State Representative Trey Kelly, who back in 2014 chaired Georgia's House Study Committee on Autonomous vehicle technology and while first half the show we were talking with Katie Masaurus who is just leading the security research and vulnerability disclosure so she's getting helping us create the more secure devices or at least getting that information out there and that leaves the challenge for federal state and local legislators, lawmakers, and regulators where, President Kelly, y'all have your work cut out for you. And do you, how do you help drive these industries but get out of the way when you need to? And we are talking before of how one of your acquaintance, your friends was testing, and I forget now which car he was telling you he was using it in, but it's fascinating to me that the automakers rolled out the technology kind of 
rather than the in the drone industry where they're asking permission first before they do automakers kind of did it and then said oh hope that's okay but it seems to be working here well i think what we're looking at here is again just talking about the evolution of the automobile um before and when you really look at driverless technology as a safety feature it makes a lot of sense the way that our manufacturers have have acted they are treating this product just like they treated uh, seat belts or how they treated airbags or how they treated cruise control um, they are just improving the a safety feature of the automobile itself and so i i applaud what they've done um as you mentioned earlier, there'll be no hesitancy of of a many legislators to jump in to try to find a, a issue to legislate uh, if they if they can on driverless technology. Some because some don't understand it, and there is the uncomfortable uncomfortableness uh, that comes from not understanding a technology. Uh, but I'm proud of Georgia. I think this just goes to show again another way that Georgia has being business friendly. We're proud of ourselves here that we're the number one state in the nation to do business and one reason for that is because we we make investments in our uh, our students so that we have educated workforce because we have a low tax burden but also because we try to stay out of the way of business Uh, we don't need to increase uh, regulatory uh, environments on business because it will it'll stifle growth and in this case it could harm uh, the potential uh, safety improvements that we have from driverless technology. Well, and one of the things is Georgia is about to really jump headfirst into some transportation infrastructure upgrades. Now, when the legislature is looking at uh, projects like that, and uh, you know, I imagine the Department of Transportation as well, one of the issues you've seen with the driverless uh, technology has been it's relying on sensors that in some cases are guiding off the reflective strips on the roads or guiding off getting the feedback that there's a curb there. Does that play into any of the projects? And I know I'm branching slightly outside your specific uh, committee assignments uh, to some degree, but in the discussions that you have in this area, do you see that factoring in of, well, we need to make sure we're creating the framework that's going to meet the technology, or is that more of an afterthought bonus? No, I I think um, any uh, advances that need to be made in actual transportation infrastructure is, is certainly uh, something that we're trying to keep our eye on. Uh, but in our committee, one thing we really try to do is encourage the manufacturers to not go there. We already know that it's expensive to build roads. It's expensive uh, for this infrastructure already, and we have a limited number of dollars to do it. And, you know, any um, investments that would need to be made to uh, that would drive up the, the per-mile cost of highway is something that, that could be longer to be integrated just because of our limited resources in terms of transportation dollars. Um, we're trying to pave more roads now, trying to um, you know, create more more highway now uh, with 
with the cost that we have now, and it's tough. So we really tried to push the manufacturers to uh, use the technology that, that, uh, that they're relying a lot on now, which is the cars talking to each other, as well as advanced uh, uh, LiDAR and sonar technology to help that, that is integrated into the cars that read off the environment without necessarily having to, to talk to the environment. I think when you're looking at maybe, you know, you know if one example I said during the committee is if, if we need to stripe the roads blue, that's something that could be done. But if we need to have, you know, wireless sensors every so often, that's something that, that I think could be a huge expense and something that could hamper the growth of this, of this technology. And I think the approach that's being taken now with the manufacturers trying to beef up the LiDAR and sonar technology is part of the rise and success that they've seen of being able to uh, get this technology integrated um, without uh, without having the, the government breathing down down their their uh, their necks so much now. Well, and one of the things that Katie and I were talking about was how do you get out here you know, when you have this technology that it requires updates and patches because it's created, at least right now, by the human factor, that you have people writing the code or you're building off of uh, what has come before. But as vulnerabilities or bugs in the software, the systems are discovered, what are some of the ways, if you leave it up to the, people we don't always update or patch what are some of the ways you see that changing because right now if there's a product recall you have federal agencies and you that push out okay there's a recall but is that something that should be or could be done on the state level or does that best left elsewhere no, I, I think that the big question that states have in the areas where states are really going to have their most influence is how you talk about the liability system that exists for uh, this technology. That's the area that I think uh, would give give um, lend itself to the most influence at the state level when we talk about what happens with one of these wrecks, which we're not seeing many of uh, <laughs> out Thank in, Cal- in California. But when it does happen, when there are areas where, where a update uh, maybe wasn't done or where the software itself was defective or maybe not secure enough uh, to, to make it uh, less vulnerable to hackers, I think that's where we go look at our civil justice system. And we're going to explore you know, who, where the responsibility lies. And I think it's going to be a mix. I think there's no way to integrate this technology into the roads without there being some shared responsibility between a car manufacturer uh, and the owner of the car, as well as if, if the manufacturer of the car is then relying on a third party to develop or service the software. So you can have several shared parts of responsibility here depending on who's at fault. Uh, There's enough fault to go around is what you're saying? Well, I, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> I hope not. But I think that will be the... Uh, most effective way to deal with it and will encourage the best behavior of of everyone. I think if we rely on a, on a, on a bureaucrat to purely be the one who oversees this, I think it won't be efficient. I think but we're going to ask for personal responsibility out of, out of individuals when software updates do come that they do them. And if they don't do them in a timely manner, then they could be held liable. 
uh, then again, if, if manufacturers or software developers aren't taking the, the proper precautions to develop safe technology, then they need to be held responsible. And so I, that's the framework, at least I envision. I think that that is uh, the most fair, and I think that integrates best um, into our system. But you know, no, absolutely. If you take responsibility away from one party and weigh too heavily on another, then that party, you're not going to see the innovation or you know, the self-preservation of, well, if we know we're at risk because we don't do this or develop this, then we're going to find ways to make it better or improve it. But if you take away that responsibility where, eh, you download it, you don't, we patch it, you don't, uh, not not our problem. You just don't see that innovation there. But that, this is some, this an area we certainly want to encourage as much innovation as possible here where we want to continue to see this grow. We want to continue uh, seeing this be an avenue to improve safety and efficiency on our roads. But, that, you know, this this is a this is a, became a very personal uh, issue to me and what really drove, you know, drove my interest initially uh, was, and then many people who are listening today, and I'm sure you have, may have seen a new segment several years back where a gentleman got in a driverless car and, and got out and ran his errands for the day. Um, and then at the at the end of the end of the segment after you've watched him go through the drive through to pick up his dry cleaning, gone through the drive through to pick up some lunch and you know, gone to visit his doctor and ran all his errands for the day. At the very end of the segment you see the man get out of the car uh, with dark glasses and a cane and he's legally blind. And driverless technology has given this man his mobility back, has given him his independence back. And that was something that is deeply personal to me. I grew up uh, with a grandmother that was blind her entire life. And I I watched her have to rely on individuals to give her rides uh, to the store or to her doctor. And I think about the quality of life improvements that we can make in people's lives by allowing them to uh, have some independence back. And I think this is something that really does that. Uh, and why I'm so proud to be able to work on this issue uh, and to try and uh, work with these manufacturers so that the government does stay out of their way and then can provide uh, uh, the the proper framework when necessary. Well, and thank you for giving us such a good positive note to end on. Uh, I feel that so many of the shows were focusing on the negative with these topics that uh, bringing up that so thank you for that reminder and also thank you for joining us on the show today it's been a pleasure thank you to the listeners thank you to Hall Booth Smith and to America's Web Radio you've been listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz catch us next week or on the podcast great this is America's Webradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you